Hi, I'm Tyra G, your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week, we meet for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joy and lessons learned. We will share topics that tradition tells us there's some things you just don't even talk about. But not here. Here we live beyond the wreckage. Every week we will start right where we are. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, should you miss us, not to worry. You can catch our podcast on YouTube. Just key in, frankly speaking, with Tyler G. And if you feel like connecting with me offline, that's easy, too. All you have to do is... Key in Tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. Well, guess what? It is February again. Yes, indeedy, the shortest month of the year. It's also the month the United States and a few other countries decided to celebrate black history. Do you know how that happened? Do you know why? Well, to create our common thought space this month, we are going to take a discovery walk back in history together for a gentle reminder. Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans and at a time for recognition of the central role of blacks in U.S. history. It was not always the case. The event grew out of Negro History Week, the brainchild of noted historian Carter G. Woodson and other prominent African Americans. Since 1976, every U.S. president has officially designated the month of February as Black History Month. The story of Black History Month begins in 1915, half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. That September, Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson and the prominent minister Jesse E. Moreland founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements of black Americans and other people of African descent. 
Known today as the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, the group sponsored a National Negro History Week in 1926, choosing the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays, listen to this, of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. The event inspired schools and communities nationwide to organize local celebrations, establish history clubs, and host performances and lectures. Did you know the NAACP was founded on February 12, 1909, the centennial anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln? In the decades that followed, mayors of cities across the county began issuing yearly proclamations recognizing Negro History Week. By the late 1960s, thanks in part to the Civil Rights Movement and a growing awareness of black history, Negro History Week had evolved into Black History Month on many college campuses. President Gerald Ford, officially recognized Black History Month in 1976 upon the public to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every arena throughout our history. So, every year beginning February 1, an entire month of events are planned nationwide honoring the contributions of African Americans. The theme of Black History Month in 2019 is Black Migrations, tracking the continuous movement of Blacks from the American South to the industrialized North and beyond. Beginning in the early 20th century, a growing number of Black industrial leaders and Black entrepreneurs emerged as their families relocated from farms to cities and from the South to the most industrialized Northeast and Midwest. Along with the emergence of new music genre like ragtime, blues, jazz, the Harlem Renaissance in New York City also signaled a blossoming of the visual arts and literary arts. Well into the century, blacks continued to break the color barrier in sports, business, politics, and have recently challenged the traditional bastions of wealth and power at the local, state and national level. This week, Frankly Speaking Family is celebrating two black female entrepreneurs, yes. And after a short break, we will remember Madam C.J. Walker and Lisa Price of Carol's Daughters. Both women focusing on the hair and skin solutions for women of color. Now you stay close. This is going to be very interesting. This is Radio Fairfax, free-form programming created by the people for the people of Fairfax County, Virginia. Call us or email us, 703-560-TALK or radiofairfax at fcac.org. Madam C.J. Walker was born Sarah Breedlove on December 23, 1867, on a cotton plantation near Delta, Louisiana. 
Her parents, Owen and Minerva, were recently freed slaves. And Sarah, who was their fifth child, was the first in her family to be freeborn. After suffering from a scalp ailment that resulted in her own hair loss, she invented a line of African-American hair care products in 1905. She promoted her products by traveling around the country, giving lectures and demonstrations, and eventually established the Madam C.J. Walker Laboratories to manufacture cosmetics and train sales beauticians. Her business acumen led her to be one of the first American women to be a self-made millionaire. She was also known for her philanthropic endeavors, including a donation toward the construction of an Indianapolis YMCA in 1913. In Indianapolis, the company not only manufactured cosmetics, but also trained sales beauticians. These Walker agents, as they were called, became well known throughout the black communities of the United States. In turn, they promoted Walker's philosophy of, catch this, cleanliness and loveliness as a means of advancing the status of African-Americans. An innovator, Walker organized clubs and conventions for her representatives, which recognized not only successful sales, but also philanthropic and educational efforts among the African-Americans. In 1930-13, Walker and Charles, her husband, divorced, and she traveled throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, promoting her business and recruiting others to teach her hair care methods. While her mother traveled, Aaliyah Walker helped facilitate the purchase of property in Harlem, New York, recognizing that the area would be as important for future business operations. Now, in 1916, upon returning from her travels, Mark Walker moved to her new townhouse in Harlem. Here's Harlem again. From there, she would continue to operate her business while leaving the day-to-day -day operations of her factory in Indianapolis to its forelady. Caught that? Not foreman, forelady. Walker quickly immersed herself in social and political culture of the Harlem Renaissance. She founded philanthropic endeavors that included education. In 1905, she was hired as a commissioned salesman by Annie Turnbull, a successful black hair care product entrepreneur, and she moved to Denver. While there, she continued to grow Madam C.J. Walker. And in 1907, she and her husband began to promote. Her husband was a specialist in advertising and promotions. As profits continued to grow, 
She opened a factory and a beauty school in Pittsburgh. And by 1910, when Walker transferred her business operations to Indianapolis, she had the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company and had become wildly successful with profits for the modern-day equivalent worth several million dollars. You are listening to Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Radio Fairfax in Fairfax, Virginia. I want you to be encouraged as you listen to our next story, and this will be given to you in the voice of Lisa Price. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Comcast Business. Business has always been driven by innovators. That's why Comcast Business is helping you with technology that provides better experiences. Comcast Business, beyond fast. Hey, everyone. You know, one of the things that I love about Lisa Price's story, it's that she was almost blindsided by her own idea. I mean, when she first started making skincare products, she was putting them into baby food jars and just selling them to friends at church. She did not think about turning it into a huge business. But the story of how it happened, the story of how she ended up creating one of the biggest skincare products for women of color is pretty amazing. Oh, and by the way, Lisa is also going to be a speaker at the How I Built This Summit in October in San Francisco, which is being supported by American Express. Anyway, this episode originally aired last June. It's a great one, and I hope you enjoy it. You know, you're, you're bursting at the seams, and you can't accommodate people, and your neighbors are starting to look at you like, what's going on in there? I mean, we were actually watched at one point for suspicious activity. Because, they're, you know, people yeah. are just ringing the bell and going inside, and they come out with bags. Like, what's going on in there? From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Lisa Price whipped up some homemade body butter in her apartment, sold it at a flea market, and then turned it into one of the biggest beauty brands for women of color. If you log on to carolsdaughter.com, you'll see this beautifully polished website with dozens of hair products, body creams and butters, oils and treatments, all for sale. And you'll see this incredibly diverse range of women as well. All types of skin tones and hues, curly hair and straight hair. And if you scroll all the way down, you'll see in small type a division of L'Oreal. And L'Oreal, if you don't already know, happens to be the world's largest cosmetics company. L'Oreal bought Carol's daughter in 2014 for an undisclosed amount of money, but 
you can safely bet that it was for a lot of money. Now, that's not so unusual, a big multinational buying another company, right? But what is unusual is that Carol's daughter literally started in Lisa Price's kitchen, a one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. And if you haven't already guessed, it started out as a passion project because Lisa already had a career, in fact, a pretty cool one. In the 1980s, she landed a job as a writer's assistant on The Cosby Show, which at the time, of course, wasn't yet tarnished because of Bill Cosby. In fact, it was the hottest TV show in America. I thought that I had found the career that I was going to do for the rest of my life because it was an amazing experience. Um, it was particularly incredible being, you know, uh, an, an African-American woman and what that show meant to me and my family to see African-Americans depicted in, you know, such a positive light. So it was something that for me to be standing in the Huxtable kitchen the morning of my first table read mm. as I'm listening to the cast read the script, I, I could have just floated off <laughs> at that point. I mean, presumably, you know, I, I guess looking from the outside, one would think this is going to be a career. Like, this is what you're going to do with your life. But that is not what happened. No, it's, it's not. I could have gone on to have been a script supervisor um, production coordinator, associate producer, perhaps on on the operational side of things, um, and that that is what I thought <laughs> I was going to do. Because you were presumably happy doing that, right? I was ecstatic. It yeah. was wonderful, and I think because I was very happy at what I was doing with work when I had my downtime and I was not at work, I didn't have that desperate feeling that you feel when you're like, oh God, I'm finally not at work and I just want to relax and I just want to veg out, you know? So I became creative when I was at home. How did the idea to start making beauty products even occur to you? Well, what initially happened was, um, I'm a huge Prince fan mm -hmm. and have been for many years, and I read an article about him and in that article, they talked about how he always smells very good, and the reason for it was he kept um, an assortment of fragrances on his bureau. And uh, it was also rumored that he put Chanel Number no. 5 in his boots so that whenever he took off his boots, he didn't have to worry about his feet not smelling good. Wow. I, I, could, uh, I could see Prince doing that. <laughs> so I just love this idea of this blending of fragrances and creating these unique scents. But you weren't thinking about this as a business no, initially. No, just, not just at all. Just to do for, for you. Just to, like, just to do for me. Yeah. And that's what I began to do. I learned that the way that your fragrance lasts on your body is you layer it. So you wash with it, you hmm. moisturize with it, then you spritz it on. Hmm. So then I said, well, I don't, I don't have moisturizers that smell like this. Where am I going to get that? And at first I started using lotions that I could get at the drugstore, and I would put fragrances into them and, and blend it. It, it didn't work. That, that wasn't you know balanced from a chemistry perspective. So things would just separate hmm. and be kind of messy. And that led me into looking into possibly making my own. And one day I walked into this like new age kind of bookstore and there was a book on essential oils and the art of perfumery. And in that book 
were basic recipes for a massage oil or a cream or a balm. So then I thought, this is great. I can make my own lotions. And, uh, you know, the recipes were very, like, bare bones. And, you know, they used things like paraffin and lanolin, which I wasn't too crazy about using. I, I wanted to use... Uh, beeswax and I wanted to find cocoa butter. I used the the skeleton of the recipe within the book and then I just started adding my own combinations and tweak it you know if something came out runny or too thick or too oily or too stiff. Wow so you were like literally melting down cocoa butter on your stovetop and Mm -hmm. um, like cooking up other things and mixing Mm -hmm. oils together Mm -hmm. and then seeing what came out? Yes. Wow. So that's how you, I guess that's how you make body butter, right? You start to melt a bunch of stuff and mix it together. Yeah. I mean, today you could, you know, go on YouTube and look up DIY videos and and get a good head start. But uh, back then you just kind of had to figure it out. And and this was, and and this was like what, the the late 80s or the early 90s? That was the late 80s. Um, I, I began selling because I had actually gotten something uh, that, you know, looked good and worked. Uh, and my mother encouraged me to sell at a church flea market in May of 93. Well, she, she was saying, hey, Lisa, this stuff is pretty good. Like, you're, you should mm-hmm. sell this. People might buy it. That, that is pretty much verbatim what she and, said. And what did you think? Did you think, oh, God, I don't think anyone's going to buy this. This is just... I, I, there you go. I did not th- I said, really, Mommy? Do you think people would pay for this? <laughs> and she said, yeah. She said, your butters are good. They, you know, my skin looks great. And she was using it on my little brothers and sisters. And, you know, she said, I, I think you should try. And I remember saying to my mom, I said, Mom, what am I going to put them in? Because I just would give it to friends and family, so I'd put it in Tupperware or Rubbermaid. You know, (laughs) I I didn't think about a jar. And she said, well, we could use recycled baby food jars. Um, Because my mom had adopted my baby sister, Tora, uh, Mm -hmm. very recently. So she had lots of baby food jars. Oh, wow. And we, you know boiled them on the stove like how you used to sanitize (laughs) bottles back in the day and I put the cream in the baby food jars and made my labels by hand and I took them out to that flea market and I sold out wow what did you what did you call them at that point I called the company Carol's daughter um I I did have uh, a name and uh, I called it Carol's daughter because that's literally who I was my mom was Carol and I was her daughter and the products that I sold, I called them fragrant moisture butter at the time. So you show up at this flea market. By the way, you are still a writer's assistant on the Cosby Show at this point. This is like your weekend side hustle, right? No, by 93, Cosby had ended. And I, I, so I was a, a freelance person, but it was summer. Television, typically in New York, was very slow mm. in the summer months because you, your seasons would end in May and your new season wouldn't begin until September. Hmm. Um, so unless you were working on a pilot, you were probably off during the summer. And that first summer of starting at that flea market at the end of May, I spent most of that summer making money selling at different craft fairs and expos and things like that. And I went back to work that fall. What did you, how much money did you have to put in to like launch this thing? That very first flea market honestly was an investment of $100 between, you know, whatever the table rental was and 
the ingredients that I had to purchase to fill the baby food jars that I had and maybe some flowers, you know, to decorate Mm -hmm. my table. And what I did, I just kept reinvesting because I didn't have money that I could say, oh, well, I'm just going to go pull 10000 out of my savings to start this business. So it was something that started in a very small way, a very organic way. And I didn't do anything that I couldn't afford to do. So if, if someone told me about an expo in Georgia, that's fantastic, and the fee to get in is only $5,000, I wasn't going there. But a table, yeah. you know, in Park Slope for 35 bucks, okay. <laughs> what, who, was, who, who were your customers in that first summer? They were mostly African-American women that, you know, were in the different neighborhoods that I was in. Um, I did have some customers who weren't African-American, but for the most part, that's who would come to my table. I I was not deliberately saying this is for African-American women. I was deliberately saying this is for dry skin. Mm. And subsequently, when you have more melanin in your skin, that dry skin will show. You, you look dull, you look yeah, a little bit gray, yeah, yeah, you yeah. look, as people say, ashy. And you cannot get away from that. And that's how I probably, at that time, ended up with that audience of people who were more brown because they found something that took away that ash. So if you, if you, if you were an African-American woman in the early 1990s, essentially there was very few options. It, it was really few companies that were serving your needs or, 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 or wants? Yes, very few. There was definitely a, a community that needed to be served who was not mm. necessarily being served. It was it was not something that you could walk into a drugstore and say, oh, look at that. This is fantastic. Great. It, it wasn't there. It is now, but it wasn't then. So that summer of 93, when you were like selling you know, body butter in baby jars at at church flea markets. Did you think of this as, you know, as your future? Or did you just think, oh, this is kind of a fun little side project that I'm doing and I get to hang out with people I know and, and it's just, I'm having fun? At first, I thought about it as fun. And then August of that summer, I was watching an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show. Yeah. And she was talking to people who had started businesses with little or no money and One person said, well, you have to know that you're passionate about what you do. You can't start a business just because you want to make a bunch of money because it's going to take too long for you to make any money. Mm. And if you're not passionate about it, you will quit before you make any money. And I remember thinking, I'm really passionate about this stuff. Like, I, I, I I like doing this. And then somebody else said, She would define passion as if someone woke you up out of your bed in the middle of the night, would you go and do this thing? And I honestly could answer yes to that question. And I'm someone who is very fond of sleeping and I love (laughs) a good, you know, late sleeping kind of thing. And I realized, yeah, I would get up out of bed to do this because I really do enjoy it. And I remember sitting on the edge of my bed and saying, wait a minute, maybe this is this could be a business and that day was the day that I realized this just doesn't have to be a hobby this can be more all right so that first summer ends and you go back to a job in tv Mm -hmm. and what happens to to the business to Carol's daughter at that point 
it continues to grow. Um, people call and say, hey, you know, I, I bought a jar of cream from you, you know, at such and such street fair and I'm running out. How can I get some more? Huh. And I would look at my schedule and, you know, if I knew I was going to be home on a Saturday, I said, well, if you want to come by my apartment on Saturday, I'll be home. I'm working the rest of the week, but I'll be home on Saturday. What time would you like to come by? And that was the beginning of people coming and shopping in my apartment. Wow. And, and that continued to grow to the point where sometimes I would come home to nasty messages because <laughs> someone didn't know that it wasn't an actual yeah, store. Right. You know, they heard about it from a friend and, you know. They were getting your answering machine at home. Yes. <laughs> so at this point, how did you get the word out about Carol's daughter? Because initially you were, you know, you had the, the flea markets and then right people were talking. But how did you get more people to know about it? You know, my my husband calls this the sister girl network. Uh -huh. It was literally one woman telling another woman and somebody always brought a friend with them. And if you brought a friend, you know, get a free gift or, you know, something off. So it was all of that grassroots type of stuff. And if I was out selling somewhere and someone asked me about something, if I didn't know how to make it, I figured out how to make it. So I learned how to make bath salts. I learned how to make body scrubs, different types of moisturizers. I figured out how to make shampoo, how to make conditioner. Wow. Um, and it was, it was just experimenting the way you would experiment cooking. Mm. And when did you decide to leave TV and just do this full time? I left television in 1996 because uh, my son Forrest was due to be born April 5th of that year. And I realized that if I continued to work, I would basically just give my paycheck to a babysitter. Yeah. So it just logically made sense to let the job go and see if in being at home full time while taking care of a baby, could the business grow enough? We also, at the same time, we were able to change how and where we lived. So uh, my aunt and uncle were selling their home. They were selling it to someone else. And I think there were three tries at the closing and it just didn't happen. And I finally worked up the nerve to ask is there any way that we could purchase your home? Hmm. And uh, we did it. And so Forrest was born March 18th of 96. And May 22nd of 96, we moved into the home that we live in today. And it enabled us to, you know, have the space that we needed with a baby, but also have space for the business to grow. And that was... That was a big turning point. You know, it was a huge difference. So many people coming in on Saturdays to shop. You know, there was a time where you would be like, oh, hi, Diane. Hi, Susie. Hi, Charles. And now it was like, I don't know any of you. I've never met you before. <laughs> you know, the voicemail box would fill up every hour and a half. My husband and I would, you know, wait, Who? when did you last check the phone? Oh, I checked it at 2.30. Oh, my God, it's 5 o'clock. <laughs> You know, let me let, get me a pen and paper, and it's you just you just look at it and you, and you can't you can't believe it. Lisa Price in just a moment. How a mention from Oprah 
crashed her company's website. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to our 2019 and How I Built This lead sponsor, Campaign Monitor. Campaign Monitor is an email marketing platform with a drag-and-drop email builder, a gallery of mobile-friendly email templates, and a visual automation builder. Every plan includes support available seven days a week. Success stories from publishers, nonprofits, and other industries around the world can be found at campaignmonitor.com, along with the opportunity to sign up for a free trial. More at campaignmonitor.com. Support also comes from the Candida Fund, supporting individual dignity and sustainable communities through investments in transformative leaders and ideas. Learn more at kendedafund.org. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So after Lisa started to focus on Carol's daughter full-time, things started to take off pretty fast. What was a turning point? When did you when did something happen where you thought, "Oh my god, this is like big time?" Well, because I've been in business for 24 years and because uh turning points and success and you know, those aha moments um are very relative and fluid, mm-hmm. there's been several mm-hmm. of those. So, you know, there was there was the moment when my second son, Ennis, was born and I was in the hospital um, after having given birth. And my husband walks into the hospital with Essence magazine and I was in the November issue and I actually had a half page article with a picture. Wow. And my name, which was a really big deal. How did they know about it? How did they find out about it? There, there were beauty editors that lived in the Brooklyn neighborhood where I lived, so they were always in search of something different. And then because I worked in television production for so long and then my husband continued to and still does, I would have access to makeup artists and hairstylists. And if they you know, went on another production, they could reach out to me, and I, you know, I could send it to them. Um, I, I remember hearing that Edie Falco loved a moisturizer of mine hmm. because a makeup artist that I worked with on a show shared it with her. You know, and I was like, "Are you kidding, Edie Falco? Really? <laughs> I've never met Edie Falco yeah. to this day, but she she loved one of my moisturizers." Wow. So, so by 1999, you guys were able to open up li- like an actual shop, right? Yes. The first store that was not in my house, mm-hmm. like yeah. a brick-and-mortar retail yeah. space that had windows and a door. And the landlord wanted the space to be something else. And I sent him a gift basket for his wife and a package with a letter about the brand to convince him that my shop would be great in that location. And because of my letter, he decided that he was going to give me a shot and he wanted to meet with me to go over the terms. So I'm sitting in this meeting feeling so victorious that I've convinced this guy that, you know, my business is what he wants to put in here. And he's, so he says, so the terms are pretty basic. Um, I'm going to need four months deposit on the rent and blah, 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 blah. And he's like talking other mm-hmm. things. And I'm quickly adding in my head and I'm like, that's $14,000. 
Okay, that's fourteen thousand. That's fourteen thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I had no clue where I was going to get fourteen thousand dollars from, and um, it worked out. We had some small accounts set up for our sons for their college, and and we took it. Um, you know, my my boys were very very young. You know, we took. You know, between their two accounts, I, I don't know, something like $3,500 out of the bank. And then um, one of my aunts loaned me a little bit more, like another four or $5,000. Yeah, it worked out. It was it was a little, little dicey at first, but it worked wow. out. And I paid my aunt back before Christmas of that year. I mean, it's so incredible to hear how $3,500 was just excruciating, an excruciating amount of money when, of course... In you know, within a decade, you were going to be doing you know, tens of millions of dollars in in sales. But at that time, it was scary. It must have felt really scary. It it was. It definitely was. The thing that that made it uh, palatable was, I knew I couldn't stay in the house. Yeah. Like I, you know, you're you're bursting at the seams, and you can't accommodate people. And your neighbors are starting to look at you like, what's going on in there? There's all these people that come in and out every day. I mean, we were actually watched at one point for suspicious activity. <laughs> because, they're, you know, yeah. people are just ringing the bell and going inside and they come out with bags. Like, what's going on in there? And, and, and we found out later when, you know, the police officer came to shop and she, she, you know, she was like, I just want to let you know, because you probably didn't know this, you know, somebody made a phone call and someone was nervous and they, you know, realized that everything was okay and there was nothing untoward going on. But yeah, you just get to a point where you, you have to grow up and, and you have to take that leap of faith. And I, I didn't want to live in well, what if I had gotten the store? Yeah. What if I had, what if, you know, I just, you know, I would rather have had the store fail than to have wondered what if. What did your mom think about that store, that first store? I mean, her her, her name was, was in the marquee. What did, she, <laughs> how, what did she think when she walked in there? She she loved it, but but I will I will tell you the moment that she was like really excited about the business being Carol's daughter. Um, I got to do the Oprah Winfrey show in two thousand and two, and so she got to see that you know to see her daughter on Oprah, and all of her friends got to see that and. The place where she went where she would get her blood work done on a regular basis was this medical center in Brooklyn called the Hip Center. Was she, was she sick? Yes, with an illness called polymyositis. So when she came to get her blood work done after that Oprah Winfrey show, oh, Miss Carol, we're so happy to see you. <laughs> Come right in. Dr. So-and-so is waiting for you, and then I'm going to take you down to the lab as soon as you're done. She said she was in and out of there so fast. <laughs> so she told me, she said, yeah, girl, keep going on television. I could get used to this. How did, how did Oprah find out about you through the, the magazines and, and the attention you were getting there? Getting me onto the show came through producers. And the producers of the show heard about me from another producer who was interviewing for a job. Hmm. She went to Chicago to interview for a position. They talked about what they were working on, and one of the shows was 
a show about women who had started businesses in their homes. And she said to them, well, have you spoken to Lisa Price? And they reached out. They liked what they heard. They interviewed me like six times. A week later, I was in Chicago taping the show. And I was sitting in the audience. And she looked at the screen. And she sees the name of the store. And she said, Carol's daughter? You're Carol's daughter. I know Carol's daughter. You're Carol's daughter. I know Carol's daughter. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, Oprah Winfrey knows me. I'm going to die. <laughs> How did that affect business when, when it was on Oprah? It affected it in an amazing way. Um, we had our website go from having 37 people in it, and within four minutes of my segment, the audience in the website went from, you know, whatever it was, 30-something people, to 17,000 people. Wow. The, the website actually crashed. I mean, it was remarkable. It was just remarkable. Not anything crazy, like not what not what people think that, you know, one day you're on the show and all of a sudden you're a millionaire yeah, and yeah. money is just falling out of your hands. Not that, um, but definitely a significant lift and shift in who knew about us, but it was something that was manageable. Wow. We didn't implode under the pressure. So, I mean, basically... From the moment you opened that first store for the next at least decade, you guys were just just on this massive growth trajectory, right? You were just like growing and growing and growing every year and, and opening more stores, right? Well, we didn't open additional stores for a very long time. Um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't describe it as a massive growth trajectory. Um, there was growth each year. But I wouldn't describe it as as massive. I didn't open up another store until 2005. And in 2004, I took on a business partner. And then in 2005, we took on investors. And you guys had some some big deal investors, like Jay-Z was an investor, right? Yes, Jay-Z, Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith. And the investment helped us to open up the additional store Um, but also helped us to get into places like Sephora at the time, um, and then subsequently Macy's. It helped to build a better infrastructure. You know, there's there's definite um, excitement and, uh, you know, pride and, and everything when you're when you're small and you're grassroots and you're building, but there there comes a point, you know, when you start doing a million, a million and a half, two million, two and a half million in sales, where you can't wing it, you know, like things yeah. have to be secure, um, and and that's when investment was definitely needed because there there was some winging it that was going on, and and you can only do that for but so long. At a certain point, I mean, you guys were, I mean, your revenues were, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars. When you saw those numbers at the end of the year, was that strange? Did you, could you have imagined that happening? I, I can definitely say for certain that I never imagined that happening. And even to this day, I still am amazed by it. It's still surreal. Um, and that's not something that ever goes away. And I don't mind that I feel that way because I, I think it keeps me grounded. 
and it keeps me focused on the work that I do because that never changes. Regardless of, you know, 42,000 in sales in a year or 28 million in sales in a year, I'm still doing the same work. Hmm. I, I know that um, your mom, Carol, passed away, um, I think, more than a decade ago. Mm-hmm. But when she was alive, I mean, what, what sort of role did she play in your success? Because, I mean, she did actually get to witness it. She, she did. She, she did get to see a lot. What mommy always did for me was she always focused me on the positive So if I was calling her and saying to her, you know, mom, I don't know how I'm going to get these orders filled by Christmas. They all have to ship by this date. There's just so much. I, I just can't figure out how to get it all done. And she would say, well, actually, that's the easy part. And I said, what do you mean that's the easy part? Like I just said, I don't know how to do it. Like it's it's really hard. And she said, but what if you didn't have the orders? That seems to me like it would be the harder part to kind of make people be interested and make people purchase. He says, you have the orders. You have their credit card numbers. As soon as you get the stuff made, you'll get the money. So the money's just sitting there waiting for you. So that seems like it's easy. She said, I think we just need to clear our heads and figure out how to get it all done. And then she would say something like, go make yourself a cup of tea. I'm going to make myself a cup of tea. Call me back and we're going to figure this out. And I would be like, is she crazy? And I would go make my cup of tea and come back to the phone and we would talk and I'd sit there with pen and paper and we would figure out a plan. And I never let that go. I know that in 2014, you sold the company to L'Oreal. Um, mm-hmm. was, that, was that difficult for you to sell this thing that you built out of your apartment in Brooklyn or or did it feel like a weight was lifted off your shoulders I mean that you know that that's a huge deal I mean the one of the biggest cosmetic companies in the world buying your company it was not a difficult thing for me to do um, at at all except for the fact that the process to get there is difficult so it wasn't oh my god I have to sell my baby I can't I can't I can't that emotion had already happened because in 2007, Carol's daughter took on equity partners with Pegasus Capital Advisors. So once you take on an equity partner, your goal is to sell to a strategic partner and everyone exits happy, hopefully. Um, So having someone like L'Oreal acquire the brand was something that I knew would happen. And I always had L'Oreal at the top of my list, and it did work out. And I was thrilled and proud, and because for me, it was the culmination of all of that work that I had to do to fix the mistakes that I made in my company. Not trusting my gut often enough, um, not valuing what I brought to the table, and not valuing myself as a business person and as a smart woman. Hmm. And I had to find my voice again. And so I got it back. I I felt strong, I felt empowered, and I stood with everyone else shoulder to shoulder and guided Carol's daughter to that place for us to have that acquisition. So I was very, very happy. 
when when L'Oreal bought the company, some of your customers were were, were disappointed because you know, right? You, I mean, you know, they felt that well, this was a, a, a company owned by an African American woman, and now it's owned by this big multinational. How did you How did you respond to that when 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 you heard that? It didn't take me by surprise that there was some backlash. I think the only thing that took me by surprise was that some of the backlash was very personal huh. and very pointed and very cruel. And just speaking about me in in ways that I I was like, how do you say this about somebody that you've never met before? Wow, that was surprising. Um, But what I realized was people didn't know my story. I realized that as um, a a group of people within this world, African-American people historically, we have less experience with generational wealth. Yeah. We may be successful in certain areas. We may have become rich recently, but we don't really know what generational wealth is. And we haven't come up in families that have owned and passed down businesses. Yeah. So there were just things that people didn't know. And they wrote a narrative for me on what they felt was appropriate and what they hmm. felt was something to be proud of. And I didn't follow the script. And, and I apologize for how they felt and, and that I didn't follow the script that they wrote for me, but I used the opportunity and still use it to educate as best as possible because it's going to take us time to build that generational wealth and then perhaps be in a place where we have the luxury of not having to sell yeah. because we were able to build it on our own or we were able to build it with mom and dad's help. And we can stay privately owned, but it's going to take time to get there. Hmm. Um, but it, yeah. it, it was it was difficult. And sometimes it still is difficult because yeah. people still will bring it up. And it's it's almost as if I've been asked to apologize for one of the greatest accomplishments of my life and something that I'm very, very proud of. But for a, a little girl in from Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, you did pretty well. <laughs> yes. Did pretty well. Yes. I, I did. I definitely did better than I would have had I continued to have a career in television and film production. Um, and there's a there's a, a, a very deep respect that one ends up having for where they are, where they've come from, and what they have when you go through something like that. Um, and, and I just I just have a very, very profound respect for what I've done. And I won't be that person who runs off and buys planes and cars and things like that because I have too much respect for how hard it was uh, to get there. Wow. I love that interview. I think uh, it's a lesson for all of us to understand humility to understand passion about something, to understand that you, I, I heard Lisa Price say she had forgotten for a moment that she was worthy. She had forgotten for a moment who she was. She had forgotten for a moment that she had everything she needed inside of her to do what she was supposed to do. You know, It's important for us 
to keep some memory inside of us to serve as a band-aid when we cut ourselves with doubt. It's important for us to have a friend or a relative that becomes our in case of emergency person that can look at us and tell we have forgotten the words to our favorite song and can sing it to us. Oh, gee, I want to say to you, you were born, each and every one of you, with everything you need. There's absolutely nothing you are missing. There's no need to frank frantically become more, be more, do more, get more. You are whole and complete and were gifted every talent and insight you needed to thrive in this world in the moment you were born. Your only job is to accept this truth and then allow it to unfold. Some gifts don't become apparent until later in life. Some insights only become clear to you once you have experiences that unlock such wisdom from within. I need for you to trust this and to relax. And if you have a mom that is still with you or someone who's playing the role of mom, remind her how much you love her and look in that mirror and remind yourself how much you love you. I am so excited every time we connect. I'm here to encourage you, to empower you, to celebrate you. Your seat at this table is guaranteed. All you have to do is show up. And remember, I'm here, I'm listening, and I love you.